Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to have with us today on retina synthesis, Dr. Peter Kaiser. Peter is a professor of ophthalmology and holder of the Cheney and Dowd Chair in Research at the Cleveland uh, Clinic Cole Eye Institute. And uh, he's also medical advisor to ocular therapeutics. Peter is recognized as the world's foremost expert on the development of new retinal pharmacotherapies, and he's been lecturing about this for more than a decade. We're pleased to have to have him today to talk about his work at Ocular Therapeutics. Peter, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you, Carmen. Pleasure to be here. So one of the things that you've talked about for many years are tyrosinase kinase inhibitors and novel delivery systems. And in an exciting set of developments, Ocular Therapeutics is working with both. Can you discuss both TKIs and delivery systems? Sure. So tyrosine kinase inhibitors or, or TKIs are something that's been used uh, extensively on, in the oncology space. In fact, there are many uh, TKIs that are approved uh, for the treatment of cancer. And the, the reason TKIs are exciting for both oncology as well as ophthalmology is is basically the VEGF receptor, the PDGF receptor. All our receptors that we talk about every single day um, are what are called tyrosine kinase receptors. So when they're activated by their ligand, whether that be VEGF or PDGF or, or angiopoint 1 for the TI2 receptor, for instance, they activate this tyrosine kinase cascade that leads to uh, the downstream effects, whether that be angiogenesis, leakage, inflammation, et cetera. So all our current anti-VEGF therapies block the ligand. So they block VEGF or angiopoietin uh, 2 in the extracellular space. There's nothing at the level of the receptor. In contrast, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor actually works within the endothelial cells, blocking downstream activation of anything that attaches to these ligands. Now, the first generation of TKIs were, were very broad. They, they, they basically blocked uh, a lot of things, and, and that's not really what we want in either oncology or in ophthalmology. We specifically want tyrosine kinase inhibitors to target the receptors that are bad. So for, for us, mainly VEGF receptor 2, and probably PDGF also, because PDGF is involved in fibrosis um, for CNV, fibrosis and diabetic retinopathy. Um, and as you may remember, there were some early reports that a PGGF inhibitor could maybe cause CNV to shrink um, with a company called Optotech. So PDGF is, is definitely involved also. And so these second and even third generation TKIs target multiple receptors, but target them very specifically. So that's the first thing about TKIs, why we're starting to get excited about them now, because you recall TKIs were tested in the past. They basically took the oncology drug and just put it into ophthalmology. So it, it was either a pill or intravenous even, and they simply didn't work. They had significant side effects. And only when we put it inside the eye are we starting to see effects. And the second part of your question was, you know, why do we put it in a polymer? And there's several companies looking at this idea of putting it in a polymer because TKIs themselves, even though they're relatively insoluble, 
they they're going to only last maybe two three months maximum if you just injected it intravitrally um whereas if you put it into a polymer then theoretically we can make it last depending on on the polymers uh, characteristics uh, longer so some polymers last say four to six months like plga for instance which is what is used in a dexamethasone implant osrdex uh, that lasts roughly four to six months more uh, so newer polymers last longer. So PVA, PLA, uh, these all last longer. In ocular therapeutics case, they use a different polymer than all these others. It's, it's called hydrogel. And hydrogel has actually been FDA approved in, in multiple indications throughout the body. But in ocular therapeutics case, it's also what is the basis for uh, Dextenza, which is their intracanalicular dexamethasone implant in the hydrogel. So, so we have a lot of experience with hydrogel both throughout the body uh, as well as an indextensa implant uh, in around the eye. Uh, and it's not inflammatory, it, it, it breaks down very easily. The thing that's kind of cool about hydrogel technology is, is it's the majority of hydrogel is actually water. It's about 90% water. Uh, and that's what it breaks down to, it, which is water. A lot of polymer technologies basically release whatever drug that is within it before the polymer actually degrades. And many of us uh, in ophthalmology know that when we look inside an eye in a patient we give an Osrdex to, the drug we know is starting to wear off because we're starting to see increased inflammation or, or increased swelling in DME, for instance. Um, but we could still see the carcass of the PLGA within the vitreous cavity. In contrast, the hydrogel actually disappears prior to the drug. So in the, in the phase, uh, the clinical study that was done in the US uh, against uh, Flibercept, the, the drug actually lasted longer than the polymer. So if you can still see the polymer in the eye, you know it's releasing drug. And that makes it a little easier uh, in the future, hopefully, to decide when you may wanna retreat uh, with this type of technology. So in the OTX TKI uh, drug, what is the TKI that you've chosen and why have you chosen it? So the, the, the TKI that we chose is called Excitinib. And the reason Excitinib was chosen was several fold. First of all, and most importantly, it has the highest uh, binding, uh, so the IC50 binding for VEGF receptor 2 of all the known TKIs that are out there. It also has excellent activity on the PDGF receptor activity. And more importantly, it has almost, it basically has zero activity on a TI2 receptor. So you can imagine if you activated TI2, um, uh, or in this case, block TI2 with the drug, uh, that would be problematic. And excitinib does not block uh, the TI2 receptor. Uh, the other reason is it's actually FDA approved for in oncology. So it's actually been proven in other fields. And, and so that's the main reason why Excitinib was chosen. We now have the one-year results of the OTX TKI trial in the United States. Can you tell us the trial de design, the logic of the trial design, and the summary, high-level summary of what happened? Yeah, sure. So, so first of all, I, I would actually back up one step, which is the, the phase one first in human study was actually done in Australia. Uh, and in that study, it's your typical first in human dose escalation. So 200, 400, 600 microgram 
dosages were tested uh, in patients who had active leakage. Um, and in fact, uh, the, in that study, you could actually enroll treatment-naive patients. And in that highest dose group, in that 600 microgram dose group, uh, five out of the six patients in that cohort were actually treatment-naive wet AMD patients. And so we had a very good feel for how the drug worked without any anti-VEGF in, in a treatment-naive patient and how long uh, it lasted. And, and in that cohort, so in that highest dose cohort, first of all, the, the drug itself, no anti-VEGF on board, was able to nicely control these patients for around six months uh, with treatment naive with excellent safety, so there are no, no safety issues. So based on that, when we took the drug to the United States, we wanted to do two things. We, we wanted to use this study to basically design a phase three study because we had our dose from phase one, which was the 600 microgram dose in a, in a single implant. Uh, number two, we wanted to go head to head against the, the current gold standard, which was a flibercept dosed every eight weeks. Uh, and number three, you know, the use scenario for a TKI isn't in treatment naive patients. You know, as a retina specialist, we're going to use this drug to maintain the gains that we got from anti-VEGF. That's our problem currently in, in, in treating the patients with macro generations. We do really well at the beginning, but then over time due to to either patient or, or physician uh, exhaustion, we, we lower the dosing intervals and, and our treatment wears off, basically. And you see those in a real world studies. The use scenario for a polymer like this is you get that vision gain with anti-VEGF, then you put the polymer on board to maintain that vision gain. And in the study, as I'll, I'll tell you in a moment, you know, the, the, most of these patients were getting out to about eight, nine months uh, before they started to need rescue. So, so theoretically, you just give this injection about every eight, nine months, depending on, on when they needed it. Uh, so the patients that were enrolled were patients like in that use scenario. scenario. They were maintained on anti-VEGF. They're doing well, but they needed anti-VEGF. So these weren't patients that were burnt out. All the patients in the study required multiple injections in the three months prior to entering the study. So these were not dry patients. These were patients who, who needed active treatment. Um, and in the study, the vast majority of patients basically did not require rescue for, for many months. And so we were very excited about this result. Now, obviously it's a small study. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a very large study, but head to head against a Flibercept, the visual acuity results were non-inferior. The OCT results, again, were, were not inferior. So, so for us, we were, we were very excited about the results. And, and in addition, the safety, as you'd hope for any one of these types of drugs, uh, was excellent. So, so we were pretty, pretty excited about them, actually. So the reduction in aflibercept injections was like 89%. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. Over 12 months. Yep. That's, so it, it was a dramatic reduction. And uh, how long did the patients last on average in terms of duration of treatment? Six months or more? Uh, so more than six months. So so up to at, at this at the six month time point, at the 10 month time point, we were basically rescue free in about 73%. So three quarters of the patients required no rescue. And it's important whenever you see a polymer study like this is to look at what's the rescue criteria. 
And the rescue criteria is similar to all the other polymers with the one additional bullet point of an investigator's discretion. Um, and if you look up to six months, all the rescues were at investigator discretion. None of them actually met the rescue criteria. Then from six to 10 months, there was a handful of patients, like three or so, that were rescued uh, with rescue criteria. And the thing that I like about the study, which is if everybody remained rescue free when the drug was worn off, then you'd say, well, what do you have? I mean, maybe these patients didn't need treatment in the first place. But as we would expect, since these were actively leaking patients prior to enrollment, as the drug started to wear off in the nine to 10 month time point, that's when you started to see a dramatic increase in the rescues, as you'd expect as, as the drug wore off. So uh, tell us a little bit about the injection technique. So it's, it's very similar to what we do with the Ozredex. It's a 25 gauge needle, so it's a little smaller. Um, but, you know, we, we like to go in at an angle. Uh, it has a very similar uh, sort of uh, injector as you would, or you're used to with, with any of these sustained release like Ozredex, Alluvian, et cetera, a nice one-piece uh, injector. I like to displace the conjunctiva a little bit when I give these type of injections just so the hole in the conjunctiva isn't directly over the sclera. Um, and then you very gently insert the implant. Uh, I, I tend to like to look at the implant after injection, but I think that's just overkill. Uh, but I always like to make sure uh, it's where I wanted it to be. And I always inject inferiorly. So what's the uh, optimum kinetics over time with this hydrogel implant? Well, it's relatively zero order kinetics, which is it's really nice. It's basically the water in the in the, in the Vitreous is slowly dissolving the hydrogel at a very defined, almost zero order kinetic rate that it's releasing the drug. So, so the, the, there's no like peaks and troughs to the release. It's, it's very uh, sustained. Uh, and, and because of that uh, is why we can very easily kind of predict uh, when it releases. It's, it's different than other polymers. So, so it's, you know, if you look at PLGA technology, for instance, which is one of our older technologies, but is the only FDA approved technology, the way you get any drug into PLGA, you know, if, if you were to cut it in half, the drug may be collected more on the, on the outside or on the inside. It's not really homogeneous within that polymer. And that's why when we use, say, dexamethasone, some of those patients last six months, some last three months, because each from batch to batch, there's slight variances. With the hydrogel technology, if you were to cut it in half, the drug is loaded throughout the entire polymer so that the release kinetics are very predictable. Um, so, so that's why when we looked at the studies, both in the US study and the Australia study, it was reliably and predictably getting out to about nine months before it was disappearing in both studies. So what are the plans uh, for diabetic retinopathy and vein occlusion? So diabetic retinopathy is an interesting use scenario. So as, you, as you'd expect, it's, it's VEGF mediated also, and there's a lot of it. Um, in, in the implant that we're using right now lasts roughly nine to 10 months. So we're doing a study currently in the US where we take patients with diabetic retinopathy, we give them an injection, uh, and then we have a, a sham control arm to see how those patients do. And, 
and it's time to vision threatening complications is one thing we're looking at, but more importantly, from an approvable standpoint, we're, we're looking to improve the diabetic retinopathy severity score. And, and most of us don't really use anti-VEGF for diabetic retinopathy in the absence of DME. But in this case, uh, the, the hope is that if you have a implant that you're giving every eight to 12 months, you would be able to convince a patient that, hey, I could improve your diabetic retinopathy, but I don't really need to do one injection a year, which is much more palatable than even a flibercept at, at Q3 month intervals, uh, which is what it's approved for. So what we hope diabetic retinopathy works. We don't know yet. We, you know, This is the first study that we're looking at it in, um, but we uh, hope that if that study is positive, then we'll move it straight to phase three. What about diabetic macular edema? and macular edema from vein occlusion? So it should work in both. Um, absolutely should work in both. The issue is, is this. Um, the FDA recently came out with new guidance for AMD and, and other retinal diseases. And in that guidance, it makes doing something head-to-head -head when you have a sustained release uh, very difficult. And the reason that is, is you have to do the same thing in your study arm as you do to the control arm. So if you only do one injection of a polymer that should last nine months, then you have to have one arm, have say an ILEA injection or a Lucentis injection, and then nothing else, which is a very difficult study to do if you think about it, both from a ethical standpoint and from a, a patient acceptance standpoint. So we're, we're really trying to wrestle that idea uh, in the use of both DME and, and RVO, but there's no question that it should work in, in both those diseases. Do you think the FDA is going to review its guidance? I hope so. You know, it's, it's, I, I understand why the guidance came out. It was, it was based on the fact that we're having several of the recent approvals um, say that they last longer than other drugs, even though the visual acuity results are identical. And, and so, you know, the FDA said, well, you know, that's a little unfair to say that. And you, you really need to test the other drug at the same intervals as your drug. So I get that part. But when you're talking about something that has an extended durability, um, like the polymers do, like gene therapy does, it becomes very difficult to run these studies. Now, certainly you could do it with rescue, and that's what you'd have to do. But the FDA says you can only rescue once. And, and that's difficult, right? So it's a nine month, 12 month study, depending on your patient population. And if you're gonna only be able to rescue once or maybe twice um, in either arm, that becomes difficult. So they've, I think the guidance makes sense if you're talking about just a regular old anti-VEGF type injection, but these sustained release implants, um, hopefully the guidance will change for these, for these longer durabilities because all of us know our patients want this type of treatment. We know how we'd use it if it was FDA approved. So, so hopefully he'll change. What does this guidance imply for the phase three trial of OTX-TKI in ARMD? And that's what we're wrestling with now. So, so basically we have two study designs on the, on the drawing board. Uh, our CMC is completely ready and geared up to, to do either one of these two studies by, by the end of the year, uh, depending on financing. Uh, and one would be a superiority study. Um, so when you do a superiority study, obviously you're going up against um, 
a drug, either Lucentis or Ilea. Those are only two drugs you can use. Uh, and you have to prove that you're 15 letters better than the other. This is a very similar way that, that Outlook Therapeutics, for instance, has, has used for their, for their phase three clinical studies. Uh, it's, not a, it's not as palatable uh, in the United States. Certainly that type of study would be better served outside the U.S. Uh, where, where healthcare isn't as good. Um, the other type of study would be a non-inferiority study, but, one, but multiple control arms would have to be in that. So the one would be, say, uh, ILEA every two months, but then you'd have to have a second control arm that's dosed the same way as the polymer, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in a non-inferiority manner. So, so there are two different study designs that the FDA would accept for a polymer, um, but they're, they're not, they're not, you know, you'd walk in there like it, it, it's 10 years ago, I would have said the, the way you do the study is, you know, one group gets, uh, ILEA every two months, the other group gets a polymer and a sham injection every two months. And as long as the, the polymer group wasn't rescued, the, the, the treatments are not inferior. Let's, Let's approve it. Uh, but that's not the way the FDA is allowing us to do it currently anymore. So just makes it a little more difficult from study design, but we can do it. Yeah. So it's so not another... just our company that has to do this. You know, all the polymer companies are wrestling with the same guidance and, and the same issues. So there we in the phase three trial, it won't be parallel to what, what's already happened. It'll be a bit different. It has to be. And, and that would be for us, but also for any any drug out there. Let's just say you have a, um, a, a better version of, of a flibberceptor, a better version of brisimab, a new bispecific. You can't do the brisimab study design anymore. You, you'd love to go, well, we have a, a better version of frisimab. We want to do the exact same study that frisimab did. Well, you can't. That, that's not allowed anymore. Well... That's a, a new challenge for the world of retinal pharmacotherapy. And we'll figure it out. We always do. It's just we uh, always do. But the OTX TKI uh, study is very promising. It's exciting. Thank you. We, we are very excited about it. And it's one of those things that you and I know exactly how we would use this. It's, it's just a matter of, of how can we get it approved. So thank you very much for your time, Peter. We look Appreciate forward to catching up with you later. Very good. Nice speaking with you.